Nexus PMG welcomes you to the Bigger Than Us podcast, which we as energy geeks lovingly refer to as the BTU. Bigger Than Us is a podcast that focuses on ideas that will shape the future of our planet and ultimately our existence. We will occasionally lean into energy topics because after all, it's the key to our collective survival, but we'll also explore other ideas and topics that we believe will have an impact that is bigger than us. And now, on to today's show. Hello and welcome to the Bigger Than Us podcast. I'm your host, Raj Daniels, and today I'd like to welcome Emily Stengel to the show. Emily Stengel is the co-founder and co-executive director of GreenWave, a nonprofit organization dedicated to training a new generation of regenerative ocean farmers and building the foundation for a new blue-green ocean economy that creates jobs, mitigates climate change, and grows healthy food for local communities. She brings to GreenWave a background in sustainable food systems, working for several years at a B Corp catering company in New York City dedicated to supporting the regional farm and food economy, and more recently, working on a research team focused on workforce development in agricultural communities. Emily, how are you doing today? I'm doing very well, Raj. Thanks for having me. Emily, where are you currently located? So I'm located in Brooklyn, New York. How's the weather in New York? It's a beautiful fall day here, 70 and sunny. Are you taking the opportunity to get outside and maybe take a walk? I surely am, yep. Good for you. I've been hearing that we've become, people have become more vitamin D deficient because we're not getting out in the sun enough. I know, that's a problem with this quarantine period right now, but I try to get out every day. It's it's totally necessary for my mental health. <laughs> I agree with you too. I try to make a cup of tea in the afternoon and just go sit outside for about 10 minutes to drink it. Oh, how nice. So, Emily, I'd like to open the show by asking my guest the following question. If you were asked to share something interesting about yourself, what would it be? <laughs> um. If we're talking about personally interesting, I feel like I'm a hugely boring person. But one sort of fun party fact that I always roll out is that I've run two marathons, one in New York City and and one in Philadelphia. Did you say you've run or you run every year? Well, I've, I've run the two marathons in the past. I'm aiming to run another one in the future. Here's hoping, but just had a baby a year and a half ago. So still trying to get my running legs under me. So what's the drive to run marathons? I don't know. I think it's the solitude and sort of the um, the meditative aspect of it. I, I, I find it to be um, just a really wonderful sort of reflective practice for me. Now, are you one of those that trains the entire 26.2 miles or do you do the 18 to 20 mile training and then kind of push through the rest? Oh, I, I mean, 18 to 20. I do like maybe 15 to 18. I just think <laughs> do it after that much. Yeah. <laughs> well, good for you. Now you kind of teased, you said personal or professional. What's something interesting professional? Yeah. I mean, I think for me professionally, I, I've made a huge transition in the last um, five years from working in um, sort of land-based agriculture to, to shifting in, into the oceans, actually. Well, that segues beautifully into my next question. Can you give the audience an overview of GreenWave and your role at the organization? Yeah, absolutely. So my my role, I, I'm a co-founder and co-director uh, here at GreenWave, and we launched in 2014 
um, to replicate and scale a really powerful model of ocean farming that my co-founder, Bren Smith, had pioneered. And now Bren is an ex-commercial fisherman who remade himself as an ocean farmer, um, raising seaweeds and shellfish off the coast of Connecticut. And, you know, for folks who are unfamiliar with this way of farming, I think it really helps to visualize the farm. Um, so I'd encourage you to imagine an underwater garden. We've got hurricane-proof anchors on the corners connected by horizontal floating ropes just below the water's surface. And from these lines, we have kelp and other seaweeds that grow vertically downward um, next to scallops that are hanging in, in nets. We've got mussels and mesh socks. Then there are oysters sitting on the seafloor in cages and clams buried in the ocean's bottom. So it's nearly invisible from above water, save for a, a few buoys. And this way of farming has, has a real laundry list of benefits. First of all, it requires zero inputs. So no fertilizer, no feed, no fresh water, and produces really high yields without all of that. Um, it's also restorative. The kelp that we grow is often called the sequoia of the sea because it sequesters carbon like, like sequoia trees. And oysters that we grow filter nitrogen from 50 gallons of water a day. Uh, these crops also have the potential to reduce greenhouse gas emissions and, and rebuild marine ecosystems. Um, it's also a model that's replicable. Uh, it's, it's just an underwater scaffolding of buoys, ropes, and anchors that's pretty affordable and relatively easy to build. So, you know, with a simple design and a low cost, this means that these farms can be replicated quickly. Um, it's, it's also got bigger picture community benefits. It, it has the potential to revitalize coastal economies by utilizing, you know, existing infrastructure or latent capacity from fishing communities um, it helps to diversify existing shellfish businesses and can provide a stream of, of supplemental income for lobstermen, for fishermen. Um, a big question that we get, though, is how are these crops used? You know, seaweed can be used, of course, commercially for food, but also for, for land-based fertilizer, for animal feeds, for plastic alternatives. And, and in addition to farming these crops for commercial purposes, this model can be deployed for reforestation to restore ocean ecosystems, to capture blue carbon, to capture nitrogen in the water column. Um, and, and at scale, it can be really, really powerful. The World Bank came out with a study a couple of years ago, actually, that said if we farm seaweed in just 5% of U.S. waters, we can absorb the carbon equivalent to offset emissions of 97 million cars a year. It can create 50 million jobs. It can produce the protein equivalent of, of 3 trillion cheeseburgers. So these are like hugely powerful numbers, but they really highlight that this work isn't just about food. It's not just about climate mitigation. It's not just jobs. It's all of those things together. So we think of this as a climate solution with lots of cascading co-benefits. So GreenWave is a nonprofit organization that's working to replicate this farming model by providing training and support for farmers. So we train these farmers and we also build viable market opportunities so that we're ensuring long-term success for them. We connect them to buyers in food, in agriculture, in bioplastics. Um, and we have interest from 6,000 people, over 6,000 people from around the world, every coastal state uh, in the U.S., plus 100 countries globally. So we're aiming to train 10,000 farmers in the next 10 years at GreenWave. So for those of you listening, I highly encourage you to go to the website. I'll put a link in the show notes, but take a look at the videos and take a look at the diagram they have. 
it's really amazing. I was very surprised when I saw this. Um, has this been around for a while, or was this is this a relatively new kind of way to do, I guess, underwater farming? Yeah. So certainly, um, methods of of shellfish farming have have been around for quite some time and have been, um, you know, have been uh, prominent in the Northeast where our headquarters is. Um, but incorporating seaweed and shellfish is, um, while it's been around for some time, has really taken off in the last couple of years because I think folks are realizing these incredible benefits that can come from growing seaweeds and shellfish together. There's been some research out that shows um, sort of a halo effect of growing shellfish on, on a farm with seaweed that there's um, you know benefits that they can both reap from the other. Now, one of the items on this diagram that I'm looking at that I don't understand, and maybe you can clarify for me, the 20 acres, what's that for? Right. So you lease, um, you lease a farm site, 20 acres of, of water, um, on which you can grow your, um, your crops. So that's a lease and a permit that you obtain through your state, wherever you're growing. And it's really a process right, not a property right. So you don't own the water, but you do own the right to grow um, whatever species you've applied for on that water site. So am I understanding correctly in that a state will lease coastal water areas? That's exactly right. And the really incredible thing about ocean farming is that it's really cheap to lease um, from your state or your local town. I mean, we're looking at um, some sites that are as cheap as $25 per acre. And if you think of that compared to land-based agriculture, um, that's, that's pretty incredible. That really is amazing. And you mentioned all the inquiries. I can understand why now. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So you said kelp, oysters, mussels, clams. Are you experimenting or looking at other crops too? Yeah. I mean, we grow mostly sugar kelp in the Northeast. It's a native species. It's one that we've been working to develop the market for for some time. Um, but there are, there are so many other species of seaweed, 10,000 um, species of seaweed that, that could be grown um, in, in our waters. So we are um, certainly looking to diversify the, the species of seaweeds that are grown on our farm and, and on other farms. And obviously you mentioned the food benefits, but I know recently there's been a lot of innovation around using seaweed for straws and other containers. But I saw on your site that there's also an opportunity to create or use the seaweed for cattle feed. Is that correct? Fascinating. Yeah. So there, um, there's some very current research just out um, that, that shows that feeding cattle a very small percentage of their diet um, using a red seaweed called asparagopsis can reduce their methane output by up to 50%. So it has really in- incredible tangible methane reduction benefits. Um, and, and I'm really excited to see more research on, this, on the topic. I am too, because again, you know, you added the benefits, you mentioned the benefits regarding the employment opportunities, reducing carbon, but also being able to transition cattle away from corn and perhaps mitigating some of the methane effects from cattle. That That's another, obviously another fantastic opportunity. Absolutely. And there's a really, um, you know, in addition to thinking about the methane reduction potential there, um, it's really interesting to think about sort of historic um, habits of, of land-based farmers who are raising cattle and have been feeding seaweed to their cattle um, and, and sheep and other livestock for a long time to help 
um, you know, improve the flavor of the meat. So there's, I think there's, in addition to reducing the, the methane output, there's also this opportunity to create, um, you know, a sort of niche meat product. Now, something else you mentioned earlier about helping farmers build viable market opportunities. Can you walk me through how that looks like? So for example, if I have a listener right now that's interested and perhaps wants to experiment or wants to adventure out and build one of these farms, Mm -hmm. how do you help a farmer do that? Yeah. So we've been um, working for the past several years to build what we think of as a buyer's network. So we create, you know, as a nonprofit organization, we're really this trusted actor sort of operating um, in the middle with no financial interest in either um, the farms that we support nor the the buyers that we work with. So we do a lot of education on both sides. So working with entrepreneurs who are starting value-added products, um, you know, like kelp jerky or kelp burgers or kelp salsa, um, or even bioplastics, you know, using our seaweed. We work with them to understand, you know, in what form they're going to be receiving the kelp um, and what the seasonality of the product looks like, and then make those direct connections to, to buyers within our network. So we do a lot of that direct connection making right now um, and, and have helped, um, you know, sell thousands of pounds from our farmers over the last several years. Now, I might be asking a chicken and egg question, so let me know if I am, but was GreenWave started to support this kind of farming or was this kind of farming started and then GreenWave came along? It's a great question. So um, Bren Smith, my co-founder and and our resident farmer, um, really started this way of farming out of necessity. He um, was a commercial fisherman, remade as an, as an oyster farmer in the coast of Connecticut. Um, and, and his crops were ravaged by hurricanes Irene and Sandy in the early 2010s. And um, he partnered with um, Charlie Yarish, Dr. Yarish out of Yukon, who is a, one of the world's leading seaweed scientists, to incorporate seaweed um, into his farming model to, um, to diversify his, his production methods um, and to stabilize the farm in the face of um, storm surges and hurricanes like the one he had seen two years in a row. So he, as an individual person, farmer, developed this farming model um, and and saw so much interest in the model and from people who wanted to do what he was doing that he realized he needed to you know to start an organization around it. So we joined forces in, in 2014 to really launch an NGO that could support the replication of this farming model in a formal way. And going back to the actual farming for a moment, and just because I'm really fascinated and feel free to get as technical as you need to, can you explain to the audience how you perhaps germinate seaweed onshore and then move it offshore? Yes. Um, and I want to preface this by saying I am not a scientist, so I will explain it in, in layman's terms. But um, so we we produce seaweed seed in, in a hatchery, so essentially in a, in a nursery on land at our, at our hub. Um, and the, the method that, that we go through to do that involves collecting a few blades of reproductive wild kelp. So we go to the shore and collect on shore. We do offshore diving um, to collect a few wild blades during its reproductive time, which is typically September, October. So we're in the thick of hatchery season right now. So it's a very timely question. Um, so we go out and we collect this um, these kelp blades that are reproductive. We bring them into our lab and we, we shock them with light and, um, and temperature change to really induce like the release of the reproductive spores. So once those reproductive spores are released, we create a solution from them. 
um, that is poured into tanks, just into, you know, 40 gallon fish tanks. And in those tanks, we put in what we call seed spools. So these are PVC pipes wrapped with a special kind of seed string. Um, and we put that into the solution and the little baby spores latch onto the seed string and, and grow. We let them germinate for about six weeks before we take those spools and outplant them onto our farms. And again, I've been cheating because I've been watching the videos and just been fascinated by the entire operation. Some of these kelp strains I see can get up to be 15 feet long. Is that correct? That's right. Yeah, kelp grows incredibly fast. The growing season is from uh, about, you know, in the Northeast, about November um, until, until May or June, and it grows quite a bit in that short range. It really is amazing. So Emily, I'm going to make a hard right turn here and get to the crux of our conversation, which is the why behind what you do. Mm. You know, you've, you've been with Greenwave for about, I think, four years, if my research is correct. Why Greenwave? What motivates you? What keeps you going? Yeah, I mean, when I when I think about why I came to this work, it's it's really because of work I was doing with land-based farmers. You know, my roots are pretty firmly on land. My first job um, was selling produce at a farmer's market, the oldest indoor farmer's market in the country, in, in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, Amish country. Um, and it really set a course for me. You know, in, in my early career, I worked then in catering, doing operations and procurement for a farm-to-table catering company here in New York, really before farm to table was so buzzy, but it just um, really illustrated to me the importance of a regional food economy. Um, so I loved loved that work, but I felt pulled to go deeper into the workings of the food system. So I shifted to agricultural research. It was, um, it was academic work that took me around the country interviewing and, and surveying hundreds of land-based farmers. And I was shocked by what I heard. I mean, these farmers were telling me that they were having trouble making ends meet, they were having trouble affording farmland of their own. They couldn't pay for health insurance. They couldn't pay for childcare or find childcare in their rural environments. They were nervous about climate change and, and about the ways climate change would affect their farm business. So, you know, right around this time, I read an op-ed in the New York Times called um, Don't Let Your Kids Grow Up to Be Farmers, or something very close to that. And it was sort of a tongue-in-cheek take on how challenging it is to grow food in our country today. Um, and the author turned out to be an ocean farmer, actually. It was Bren, my now uh, partner co-founder, um, who I was introduced to through a, a mutual friend who thought we might get along. And so when I learned about the farming model from him, I was, I was hooked. You know, it felt like this solution to the issues that were being brought up so frequently to me um, by land-based farmers, you know, this access to affordable farmland linked to financial viability of the business model and ecological sustainability of, of their way of farming. So I, I do this work because I see climate change as a threat to our food system, but not just from an environmental perspective. You know, there will be no jobs on a dead planet. And the work we're doing is to ensure that we can all make a living on a living planet. I love the idea of no jobs on a dead planet. Couldn't be truer. Mm -hmm. So when you first started with Green Wave, and you started talking to people about farming in the oceans or in the waters, what do they say to you? <laughs> I mean, I think, I think uh, from Bren's take, he would say he got laughed off the docks, you know, as a commercial fisherman, people didn't think this was sort of a legit way of, um, of, of working the water, but, you know, from general interest, like we, we hear from people from all walks of life who are interested in, in farming in this way. And it's, it's really a beautiful thing to see 
um, how driven people are to make some kind of, of change in this climate crisis. So, you know, we hear from, of course, fishermen um, who, you know, who want to transition. We hear from shell fishermen who want to diversify their businesses. But we hear from people who are like, you know, late in life making career changes. And this is, they want to commit to doing something that can make a difference. So it's really, um, it's really wonderful to see people from all different backgrounds sort of want to commit to this kind of work. Now, after listening to you and, you know, visiting your website, the process seems simple enough, but can you share what some of the challenges a person might encounter if they were about to invest or perhaps start their own farm? Yeah, sure. I mean, I think there are two areas. Um, and, and one is that state to state in the U.S., there are um, incredibly different regulatory environments in each state. Um, and so that makes it challenging um, for folks to know sort of what they're up against. We are, are putting together and, and have um, tools and resources for farmers in our network to help streamline that process in any given state. But um, you know, for the average person who hasn't gone through the process before, I think it could seem it could seem daunting, um, especially because there is no sort of consistent process uh, across the coastal states. Um, the but I, I do think that that is an issue that is um, certainly um, able to be overcome, especially through support, um, you know, with organizations like Green Wave and, and Sea Grant. Um, I I also see a bottleneck in processing. This is something that. Um, is an issue for land-based farming as well. That first stage processing of stabilization of a crop once it comes off the farm or off the water um, is not a sexy part of the supply chain, but it is absolutely critical. Um, and what we're, you know, we're working now to um, develop that that component of the supply chain in partnership with with some really amazing companies. Um, to make sure that our farmers have a place to sell their seaweed if it needs to be stabilized, if it needs to be dried or frozen um, or blanched and sold in that state. So I think that that, is, um, that bottleneck is, is something that we're working very seriously on. And you mentioned supply chain. How long can the seaweed survive once it's taken out of the water before it gets to processing? Yeah, that's a really tricky part. So once it's exposed to oxygen, pulled out of the water, it really only has 24 hours um, before it starts to degrade. So we do need to get that either sold or stabilized pretty quickly once it's harvested. Um, so we, you know, a lot of the support we provide to our farmers is figuring out what, you know, what are the best practices around post-harvest handling. That is really interesting. And I'm thinking perhaps, you know, you've got a few models out there already, how they can be replicated easy, easily. And um, the other question I have is, you mentioned other countries that are interested. Can you perhaps shine a light on some of the countries that are perhaps higher up in the priority list as far as starting these processes? Yeah, um, we've been in, in pretty serious discussions um, with some folks in New Zealand over the past two years um, and, and they are working very closely with the Maori, the indigenous peoples of New Zealand, um, to build a regenerative ocean farming economy. And so we've been working to support them as they do a landscape assessment. So understand the feasibility of this farming model, um, in, you know, in their, their economy and where it could fit in current industry in New Zealand, um, and then helping them to compile a business case to look at, um, you know, exactly what, 
um, you know, what the investment structure could look like and, and what the markets are there. So that's a really critical piece of uh, moving into any new area is to fully understand the landscape and, and do some deliberate planning on, on how the industry could unfold. But New Zealand is a, a, a really promising new area and we're excited to see what unfolds there. They're great partners and doing a lot of great work on the ground. That is exciting. So Emily, almost five years on this journey, what are some of the most valuable lessons that you've learned about yourself? <laughs> learned about myself? I mean, I've learned how to properly shuck an oyster. That's one skill I've sort of added to my <laughs> repertoire. <laughs> But, you know, I, I've learned a lot and I, I had a lot to learn, you know, not coming from an aquaculture background. I had a lot to learn about the industry and about, um, you know, who's part of the industry and, and what this should look like moving forward. So I think a big thing that I've learned is like who, who's doing this farming really, really matters to this work and to the long term success of the industry. You know, our country's fishing sector brings in more than $200 billion in economic activity every year. It supports something like 1.6 million jobs. Um, and that industry is seeing huge declines in, in revenue and jobs because of climate change, because of declines in fish stocks. Um, you know, we also see coastal indigenous communities as really uniquely vulnerable. They're facing land loss because of rising seas. They're also seeing the decline of, of species like herring and salmon that have historically served as you know, a critical source of income and, and food security for them and a really big part of their cultural heritage. And you know, despite challenges, I think both of these groups have really widespread fishing and aquaculture experience and, and skills that position them to successfully leverage this farming model. Um, and so we see real opportunity to address climate change, but also address these core issues of, you know, inequality and injustice along the way by lifting up these, these key groups. Um, you know, for instance, in Alaska, we're already working with the Native Conservancy, with Alaska Conservation Foundation, and other community partners to, to adopt the model to bring back wild kelp beds and, and herring stocks. So I think that this idea of, of who farms matters is a, a big lesson that I've learned and that is central to our work. That is interesting. Who farms matters. So it's 2025. You have a magic wand. What does the future hold for Green Wave? <laughs> By 2025, I mean, I'm hoping that we've trained thousands and thousands more farmers. I mean, really, in the next five years, we're hoping to train 5,000 farmers um, you know, to meet this growing demand that we're seeing in North America and beyond. We're in the process of building out a digital resource platform. It will house tools and information to, to help farmers start farms and, and really go from seed to sale. So we see, you know, thousands of farms dotting our coastlines in the U.S. and beyond, um, you know, clustered in, in um, you know, 25 to 50 farms with necessary land-based infrastructure, with rings of institutional buyers who are supporting the market, um, with just a really robust blue-green economy that supports um, revitalization of coastal communities and, and creates jobs for folks there. You know, you mentioned the cost of leasing the water earlier. Is is there a loan program available for that? Like almost like mortgages. So for for leasing the the water, I'm I'm not aware of farmers that have taken loans out for that component. But um, you know, there I think once farmers go to scale their farm operations, um, it's quite affordable to start a, a very small scale farm, and even when compared to land based farming, affordable to start a commercial scale farm. 
Um, but I think that that is, that is a, a, a critical gap um, right now in our work is, um, you know, a, a really um, climate appropriate mechanism for funding these regenerative ocean farms as they get off the ground. You know, farmers are um, hesitant to take private capital. They don't want to be indebted to anybody. Um, and so I think there's a, a real critical need for figuring out the best way to support farmers financially um, as they scale their farm businesses. Well, I hope with your program, they can find a way to do it. I love your vision about 5,000 farmers. I'm, also, I'm almost envisioning, you know, partnerships with colleges and universities where if an individual is interesting in, in, interested in agriculture, it's not only land-based going forward, it's also ocean-based or water-based. Last question I have for you is if you could share some advice, it could be professional or personal, words of wisdom with the audience, what would it be? Yeah. <laughs> First of all, I, I feel like I'm still very much in the position of taking advice from other people, still learning every day. But one piece that um, has really always stuck with me and has been in the back of my mind while doing this work is actually from my grandfather. He was an old school businessman, a CEO of a heavy construction equipment distributor. He wrote his own, um, what he called a credo for success. It was a list of five principles that when followed would make one successful. And you know, one of the tenets is a healthy disregard for the way things have been done. And it's just always stuck with me, you know, in particular in the work we're doing at Greenwave, we're charting a new path, we're supporting the creation of an entirely new blue-green economy at sea and learning from the mistakes made on land. So while we need to know about the way things have been done in the past to learn from them, to truly have impact, we need to be willing to think bigger, to think differently and to stray with confidence from what's already been done. You know that credo for success in that uh, last part you mentioned sounds like the old uh, George Bernard Shaw quote, the reasonable man adapts himself to the world. The unreasonable man persists in trying to adapt the world to himself. Mm -hmm. Therefore, all progress depends on the unreasonable man or woman. I love that. Emily, I've so enjoyed speaking with you. Is there anything else you'd like to share before we go? No, I'm grateful for your time today, Raj. Thank you. Thank you so much, and I look forward to catching up with you again soon. Before we go, I'm excited to share that we've launched our comic strip, The Adventures of Mira and Nexi. You can find the first issue at our website, nexuspmg.com, under the Original Content tab. Thank you for listening. If you like our show, please give us a rating and review on iTunes. And you can show your support by sharing our show with a friend or reach out to us on social media where you'll find us under our Nexus PMG handle. If there's a subject or topic you'd like to hear about, send me an email, btu at nexuspmg.com or contact me via our website, nexuspmg.com. And while you're there, you can sign up for our monthly newsletter where we share what we're reading and thinking about in the clean tech, green tech sectors. Bigger Than Us is a Nexus PMG production.